0: This is the Collector Car Podcast, the home for the auto enthusiast. Join Greg Stanley as he applies over 25 years of insights and analytical experience to the collector car market. He will interview the experts and throw in some fun stuff as well. Hey, it's Greg Stanley. If you're listening to this podcast, you know I love everything automotive. This passion has expanded to include being a car specialist consultant for R.M. Sotheby's. So if you need assistance buying or consigning a collector car at any one of our online or live auctions, including Scottsdale, Amelia Island, or Monterey, you can reach one of our car specialists at rmsotheby's.com, or you can email me directly at gstanley at rmsotheby's.com. Metron Garage is a company designing unique garages, condos, and other structures specifically for the auto enthusiasts. They've got eight models to choose from, including two-story options, which I think is super cool, while with a very modern look and feel to them. And they come in all sizes, and they're fully customizable. You can check out them today and start specking your own Ultimate Garage at metrongarage.com, where you can request a catalog or talk to someone to learn more. So, be sure to check it out. I just want to give a quick thanks to Euro Classics for sponsoring this episode. Euro Classics is all about collector cars from servicing your new BMW M5 to prepping your Porsche for the racetrack to executing a total restoration on your favorite classic. They do it all from routine maintenance to performance upgrades to appraisals and everything in between. You can learn more about its owner, Dale Oaks, by listening to episode number 65 of this podcast. And you can find Euroclassics in the Kentucky, Ohio, Indiana service area and online at euroclassics.com. Classics C L A S S I X dot com. Hey, it's Greg Stanley with the Collector Car Podcast. We've got a fun one today. It's about a race I've always been curious about, never been to, and I've got someone that just ran it. So I'd like to introduce and welcome Eric Oberlander. Eric, how are you doing today?
1: I am great. Thanks, Greg.
0: Yeah, yeah, I appreciate you being on. This is a little bit of a different interview for me because We've never met. We've never talked until today, so that's different in and of itself. But we have a common friend, Sean Fannon, who does some amazing videography work, and he was telling me at lunch one time that you know, he was going to go down to Italy and video a Ferrari 250 GT running the famous—now, I'm going to pronounce it incorrectly here, but you can correct me—the Mille Miglia. Is that right?
1: Yeah, that was perfect.
0: Oh, wow. Okay, I will not get it right again for the rest of the interview, so I got it right the first time. And that's good enough for me. So if you would, tell us a little bit about not only the Ferrari 250 GT that you bought, but the circumstances around purchasing it, why you bought it, and then lead us into the race.
1: Yeah, absolutely. One of my big bucket list things, in fact, the top of the list bucket list for me, was to race in the Mille Miglia. And that, that race is uh, it translates as a 1,000 mile. That's the Italian translation. And it was one of the original world championship races back when automobiles were relatively new and it helped shape the, um, future, uh, and history of automobiles. And so that race, if you were, if you, uh, had a, uh, had an awesome fast car back in the, you know, in the, in the, uh, between 1920 and 1957, um, uh, 1927 and 1957, and you wanted to, um, Impress people or, or be good at racing cars. You would um, attempt to, to race in the Mille Miglia, which um, it was a thousand miles throughout Italy. It starts in northern Italy near Milan and then goes down through Rome and then back up. and And um, this is a, a race that is incredibly important to to Italians, um, but also to the history of automobiles. It's the race that made uh ferrari a household name it made mercedes uh, bmw porsche and many other um, automobile companies household names so back when those car companies were fledgling car companies and they had little funding they would build a race car and they would enter it into the millimilia and if they won and if they did well that became a desirable car and people wanted to have that car and so that's how a lot of those fledgling automobile companies made their name they made it by racing in the Mille Miglia. they made it by doing well they made their name by doing well in the Mille Miglia. and uh just blo- things blossomed for them so is a great um example of that if you, you study the history of Ferrari you'll see how the Mille Miglia really put them on the map and um uh you know now now you know they're w- one of the top brands in, in the world
0: yeah real quick where did where did you initially learn about the race and? become to i guess know about the race enough to have a passion to want to run in it
1: you know that's a great question and i don't remember the exact moment i heard about it i think it was from a friend who's a car nut um, and it was about 20 years ago and he mentioned something about it and i didn't really know much about it um and then i i um maybe maybe about 15 years ago i um i was looking on the internet and um i kind of stumbled across it again and that's uh, really what renewed my interest in it. And the more I learned about it, the more I realized, gosh, this is something I really want to do. And and so, what you know, what happened to the Millet is that in 1957, they ended it. It had just gotten too dangerous. Every year, people were dying. Race car drivers were dying. Spectators were dying. The cars kept getting faster and faster. The Italian roads stayed the same. And in 1957, they, they ended it. Um, they brought it back about... Twenty years later, as a regularity race, uh, meaning um, not about speed but about accuracy, and, and that it, it, it's blossomed over the decades, and now it's uh, probably the the most desirable uh, vintage car rally in the world, and it and it's still hard it's still hard to get into. So you know they limit the number of entries. Um, You have to have the right type of car, and the right type of car means a car from 1927 to 1957 that is either an original race car or the same make and model as an original race car. And so the way it works is you um, enter your car if you have the right type of car, and if you get selected and approved, you you get to go to Italy and you get to participate in this 1,000-mile race over four days through some of the most beautiful landscape
0: imaginable
1: and and really it's a rally where you go from one medieval castle to the next i mean that's the best way to describe it
0: wow that's impressive so when you decided you wanted to run it what was the process to picking the right car and finding the right car
1: yeah so so i i you know once i learned more about the melee, i realized it was something i really wanted to do but i didn't know how and, and um for, fortunately for me Several years ago, I became friends with a, a gentleman named Adam Martin who had once participated in the melee as a navigator and so he had been there and he'd done he had been there and he had done it and that was really the, the, the starting point for me and and what he impressed upon me was the need to have the right car. If you don't have the right car, you're never going to get in and so we we started uh, searching for the right car. And what that meant was a you know a night between a 1927 and 1957 car, and it had to be a car that I, um, that I wanted to own too. I just didn't want to buy any car that might get in. It had to be something that I actually wanted to drive. and The more, the more research we did, the more we realized that it, it, it's really tough to get into this race. And we actually struck out a few times. We found a few few cool cars over the years, and, and we tried to buy them, and it didn't work out for one reason or another. Finally, after a few years of searching, we stumbled across a 1956 Ferrari 250 GT Boano that was for sale in New England. It had been uh, owned for about 30 years, and the gentleman uh, had finally decided he would part with it. And this wasn't just any any Boano. Um, uh, and so for, for, for folks that don't know much about the vintage Ferraris, uh, the Buono, uh the 250 GT Buono, was a, a GT car. It was a, a high-volume production car for Ferrari. It was one of his, one of his first attempts at mass-producing a car that would fund his company. He, he had to sell cars to the public in order to stay afloat, which meant that he had to do cars besides just race cars in, in order to 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 become legitimate and to to cash flow. Ferrari. And so um that was the intent of this the, the the 250 GT. And a high volume for Ferrari was about 75 cars. So they, right. they made about 75 of, of these cars. And um this particular 250 GT Buono is a very special one. In fact, it's probably the and of course I'm biased cuz I bought the car, mm-hmm. but it's probably uh, the Boano's own. Um, and what makes it special? So what makes this Boano special is that it was the alloy prototype. They made about, no one's exactly sure, but maybe 11 to 14 alloy 250 GT Boanos. This was the prototype. And it was one of three factory competition cars, meaning that Ferrari intended for this car to be raced, and it was souped up in the factory. Uh, along with two sister cars, then there's a little more, little more special about the car than even that, and and the and the mystery. There's some mystery around this, and we don't really know how it went down. But what we know is that this alloy prototype 250 GT Competition Boano was immediately taken back to the Ferrari factory after it was sold. This would have been about January in 1956. And it spent several more months at the factory re- receiving further factory upgrades. So it's really wow. a one-off competition Ferrari. And exactly what was done, Ferrari, Ferrari can't tell us because they've lost the paperwork, although they, they know that they, they worked on the car, they admit that they worked on the car. And they did so, much, so many new things to it that they actually restamped the car and the serial number changed from 0441 to 0525 right there's a few there's a few things that we know they did they they put in um, uh, larger carburetors they lowered the engine um, they uh, moved the engine back towards the cockpit they put on um, bigger distributors um, we know from um, when the engine was uh, rebuilt we know it had competition tdf which is a tour de, a tour de france ferrari uh, cams and um, and there were some other upgrades um but we just don't know exactly what what was done and we don't know how many of those upgrades were really original you know competition upgrades versus the the um upgrades that were made when they restamped the car the car the car was then um uh, upon further upgrading returned to its owner and immediately raced in April of 1956 in the Mille Miglia
0: oh that's cool okay
1: yeah so and this car was in the same the same class as the uh, uh, Mercedes Gallwings, which were inc- incredible cars, and so um, it went head to head with the Gallwings. Uh, the Ferrari ended a uh, finished a respectable thirty third overall uh, out of five or six hundred cars. So it did quite well, but it did not win its class. It was beaten by uh, several Gallwings, and so so with that type of history and provenance, uh, a special Ferrari. Uh, a competition Ferrari, an alloy proto- prototype, and a car that was an original an original Mille, Mille racer, that is exactly what we were looking for. That's the car that when you apply to race in the modern Mille, Mille it, it's probably going to get accepted. Okay, So there's <laughs> no, you know, that's about, that's about as close to a golden ticket as you can possibly find, at least with a car that I, I could afford.
0: Now I, I gotta ask before we move on any further, real quick, uh, what were the cars that didn't make the cut?
1: Well, you know, it's been years. It, that would have been about five years ago, but uh, oh, wow. I had looked closely at at a Seata. A Seata is a uh, is an Italian race car that uh, a company that went bankrupt, but they yep. they put out some very beautiful cars, uh, and those are cars that would um, be very uh, interesting to the the Millet as far as um, entering in the race. You know, I'm sure, I'm sure they give a little bit of a preference to Italian cars. Um, you know, I don't know that for sure, but I was told that by, by many people who, um, you know, have knowledge of how things work over there. There's so many cars I would love to own, but um, you, even if you go and you buy a, a, a beautiful 356 Speedster, which would qualify for the Millet, there's no there's no guarantee that you're going to be able to get that Speedster in the race. Right. Yeah. Uh, like, likewise, with even, a, uh, you know, you could spend a million plus on a Mercedes Gullwing. And if they already have, you know, five or 10 gallings uh, ahead of you, there's no guarantee that you're going to be able to get in your million dollar Mercedes. So uh, we passed on the Seata, uh, uh because I, I just didn't, I, it was a really cool car, but, but I just didn't want to own it uh, in that I just felt like it was a lot of money for, for a brand that's gone bankrupt. And I felt like it would be possibly be a bad investment in the long term. You know, if I was going to spend a lot of money for a car, I wanted it to, you know, the way I, at least I rationalized it in my own mind. And, and, and of course to my wife was that this would be an investment. And, 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 and so, uh, you know, we needed, I, I wanted to invest in a brand that had staying power and that would actually appreciate and, um, Siata, uh, I just didn't feel like would would do that, and of course I could be wrong. I think Seattle's probably have gone up a, a tremendous amount in value. There's another company that we looked at um, called Oscar, and yep, um, they're beautiful. Asuka is a really cool car company. Uh, I may screw up the history a little bit, but my my understanding is that it was the Maserati brothers founded Oscar when they lost the rights. I think they. I think they sold their company or there was a bankruptcy and they had a, a non-compete for a period of years. And so they could not use the Maserati name and they founded Oscar. I believe that's the story because the, uh, the Oscar badge says actually Maserati on, it on the badge, on the emblem. They put out some amazing cars under Oscar. So we looked closely at an Oscar. That was a car we felt that would get into the millimilia. But we, we, I think we we actually tried to buy it, but we we lost out. I hesitated. Um, it was a car that was for sale in Europe, and I hesitated, and I wanted to to have a lawyer draw up a purchase agreement. And and the, these folks that were selling it just weren't into lawyers. They were into like handshake deals, and somebody showed up with you know cash and and, and bought it before before we could.
0: Right. Okay. Now I'm just curious of what were kind of like the runner-up cars to this Ferrari that you did buy. So, if you would take us to through kind of uh, the purchase—not necessarily the purchase, but the process to get it race ready.
1: So, we once I learned about the car, I, I, I immediately fell in love with it. It's not the most beautiful car, but it's it's certainly um, I, I think beautiful, um, and um, because of its history and, it, and its its provenance, I, I really wanted to buy it. Now the problem is I don't know anything about vintage Ferraris. Or, or really, I'm I'm not. You know, my main line of work is not in car inspections, and so I really had no um, way of knowing if I was buying um, a, a, the, the car that that would that was being advertised. And so, and and, and the car is a thousand or two thousand miles away from where I lived. So, the first thing I did was I put a, a down payment. Uh, refundable down payment to hold the car. I then hired a Ferrari inspector to visit the car and inspect it. And the, the inspe- inspection report came back that the car was exactly as advertised and, and, and there was no funny business. And so uh, we then bought it. I bought it sight unseen, and the car was immediately taken to a car restoration shop that specialized in vintage cars and vintage Ferraris. And they went through every nut and bolt in the car to make sure that this car was safe and ready to race a thousand miles in Italy. And so that, you know, that wasn't cheap. And, and, um, they found several things that needed to be fixed or upgraded, uh, all while keeping it as, a, as original as possible. And, um, the car. So the car spent about a year in New Hampshire. And then I finally had it shipped down to me over a year after I bought it. So I had not seen this car until like, uh, uh, over a year after I bought it.
0: Wow. That's impressive.
1: But it was right. You know, it was race ready at that point.
0: Right. Right. Okay. So what was it like the first day that you got the car? Was it everything you expected and, uh, hoped for?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I, uh, in fact, it was more beautiful in person than i than i than i imagined it It's a car that uh it's you you have to be i think standing next to it staring at it to appreciate what Pininfarina and Farina did with his his design and i had i, I have driven plenty of old cars, so I knew it was going to be like driving an old tin can
0: <laughs>
1: and certainly it's it's like that you know it's it, it, it's like driving a noisy tin can with a V twelve strapped to your crotch. Right. <laughs> it, it sounds beautiful. You know, it, it sounds amazing, and it, it runs smooth. Um, but there's zero sound dampening material or heat dampening material, and you've got this Ferrari Colombo V twelve just a few, you know, just a foot away from you, and and so it's noisy, it's hot as can be. But it drives like a dream. And, and uh, uh, you know, for 1956, 1957, it, that was pretty much the top, top there was.
0: Wow. Yeah. Okay. So you've got the car. You're ready to do the race. Tell us. I, I know this isn't a two hour uh, interview, so I don't want to take too much of your time, but I do want to know. What was it like racing through uh, through Italy? I mean, it had to be a lot of pomp and circumstance. From the pictures I've seen online, it just seems like an amazing, incredible once in a lifetime event.
1: It absolutely was. It was it was everything that I expected to expected it to be, and and then some. And listen, I I can't tell you uh, how incredible of an experience it was. And I, I think everybody who Everybody and anybody who might ever want to participate in a vintage car rally, you should figure out a way to, to, to do the millimilia. And even if you even if you uh, can't get a car and um, go over and experience it uh, as a as a tourist, the best way I can describe it, it's kind of like the the Tour de France in the, in the sense of uh, you know the bike race, in the in the sense that the all the citizens show up. To the towns, they they line the roadways, they line the piazza, town squares, and so everywhere you go, there's Italians and and even other Europeans. I'm cheering you on. They're they're, they're waving flags and they're they're um, there to, to see the beautiful cars and to, to root you on. So it was really a special experience from that standpoint. The I, I was blown away with how beautiful Italy is. I I've, I've been to Italy before, but I've really really never toward the country. And uh, it's, it's so mind numbingly beautiful. I just can't describe it. Uh, I've never been to like Yosemite or Yellowstone, but I imagine, you know, it's like, imagine if you could drive a thousand miles through Yosemite. (laughs) That's kind of how I felt. It was just, it was just never ending natural beauty. And then of course you're, you're going from one medieval town to the next and, and you, you would drive through these castle gates and, you drive around the uh, these old castles and out the other end of the of the town um, uh, often on cobble stone streets and then you know thirty miles away, you'd hit the next medieval town and, and that's kind of how the race goes. you know you're not going on the highways, you're going on these back roads from uh, medieval town to medieval town S- sorry if i'm I'm rambling and, and talking too much, but the, the 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 one thing that I was not expecting was how crazy the drivers are in this race and and i'm probably not supposed to say this out loud but <laughs> it was a little bit like a combination of mad max and cannonball run and fast and the furious it was unbelievable how fast people were driving and how reckless and we all were driving on these italian roads they so listen they don't they don't shut down the roads. You're driving on public roads with 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 cars, but most of the people that are driving know what's going on. They know it's familiar, and they they literally pull over as if you're an ambulance.
0: Wow, and, that's cool.
1: And so, and yeah, and so I learned and I learned a new term. It's called lane splitting. <laughs> <laughs> so lane splitting is when there's two way traffic and you're just driving down the middle of the road, and the cars are, are parting like the sea. And letting you and ten other vintage cars just whiz past them at high speeds, and, it, and it's not a it's not a speed race, but we all we all go from point A to point B as fast as we can, and uh, so there's a lot of speeding involved, even though technically they tell you not to. They want you to, you know, the authorities and the, and the folks that are putting on the race want you to obey the speed limit. But um, I, I don't, I didn't see a single driver obey the speed limit.
0: Now what was the best part about driving that Ferrari and what was the worst part? The best
1: part about driving that Ferrari was that it was a Ferrari and there are very few Ferraris left participating participating in the Mill Miglia. And I think that's because they they've most of them have become too valuable and people aren't going to put a, a 10, 20, 30, 40, 60 million dollar vintage Ferrari uh, on a public road and drive it 1000 miles. Right. Yeah. Or they've all been restored. They've all been they've all been restored too much, and no one wants to put the the wear and tear on a car that's you know a concourse restoration. So there's very few Ferraris, and and, and the, let me tell you something: the Italians love their Ferraris. And so when you, you know, they spot you a mile away and they start going nuts, and you can literally hear them yelling, "It's the Ferrari!" <laughs> I, can't, I can't say it. I, I, I can't say it right. Cause I can't mimic the French, uh, excuse me, the Italian accent, but they literally jump up and down and go, it's a Ferrari as you go past them. And it's just a really neat, neat feeling. And, um, and then we went through Enzo Ferrari's hometown of Mona, Modena. I think I'm pronouncing that right. It's, uh, Modena, maybe Modena, but, um, anyway, we, we drove through Ferrari's hometown and, um, I didn't know this was happening in advance, but because we were a Ferrari, the uh, motorcycle policeman gave us an escort out of the city, uh, just a, a single car escort. So we had four oh, wow, uh, uh, mo- four police motorcycles in front of us and two behind us, and they, they, it was, they made kind of a carriage, and they set the speed, and we just went through with them through the entire city uh, uh, to the main road. And it was a really uh, um, special moment for us, giving respect to the the their hometown hero, Enzo Ferrari.
0: Yeah. Now, what was the worst part about driving that Ferrari?
1: <laughs> the worst was a thousand miles in a in a tin can. It was incredibly noisy, and the heat was um, almost unbearable. We we there's one point where. The, the plastic, uh, the rubber on the bottom of our shoes was starting to get sticky because it was so hot in uh, the footwell. I just can't tell you how hot it was. we we um, The back of the Ferrari was just filled with empty water bottles. We had to constantly drink uh, because we were sh- sweating so profusely.
0: Now, our friend Sean Fannin, I know he, he was down there filming. And for those of you who have not checked out Sean's Instagram handle, it's just Sean.Fannin and you can see some pictures of your Ferrari. Now, what was the number on the side? Uh, Was there any significance, or is that just one that was assigned to you?
1: Yeah, so our Ferrari had two numbers on the side. Um, It's interesting that you picked up on that. So the most noticeable number was the number 459, and so our Ferrari has these big white numbers, 459, on the hood, both hoods and both doors, and we we put those on there, and those were the car's original racing numbers in the 1956 Mille Miglia.
0: Oh, that's cool. Four, five,
1: and and 459 was the time that the car left um, at the beginning of the race. So the car would leave at 4.59 a.m. And so they would just hand paint back in the day. They would hand paint the numbers on the car, and that's how you knew what, what car was what and, and how you knew to, to queue up so to, to to honor the car and the significance we put the original racing numbers on it and that way people would know oh my goodness this is an original um mille, mille race car and and uh, many of the many of the car owners do that uh, if it's an original mille race car they'll have the original numbers on it but then for this particular race we're given a new number and so we had smaller number uh 360 on the windshield, uh, front and back windshield. And that was our actual number for this race. Uh, and we were the 360th car in the queue. So you can imagine lining up 360 vintage cars. Wow. (laughs) Well, We were car number 360. Yeah. Out of, of 400
0: and something. Yeah. That's really cool. So now I know you did a lot of video for this. Is that going to be available for the public to view?
1: I certainly hope so. (laughs) <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I know that Sean has been working with some media outlets to produce uh, some uh, documentaries uh, on the Millet and on the car. And so that would be available to the public. I r- originally uh, wanted to document my experience, and that um, was one of my main motivators in, in talking Sean into to going over there and filming uh, the Millet. But I, you know we are open uh, to um, to anybody using that footage uh, to produce any type of um, you know p- publication for the public. Right. And I, right. I, I'd be I, you know I'd be open to um, Sean doing you know doing a, a number of different things with the footage if, if uh, anyone else wants to to use it.
0: Right. Right. Okay. No, that's really cool. I can't wait to see it. And what I'll do is I'll put a link in this descriptor description whenever it does post so that folks can be sure to check it out. So that's really cool. Now, do you want to do it again? And if so, would it be in? uh, I guess you probably can't do the same car twice, can you?
1: No, you absolutely can do the same car twice.
0: Okay. So are you going to do it again?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, You know, absolutely. I I think if you'd asked me uh, at the end of four days uh, of, of sweating, um, if I really wanted to do it again I might have I might have said, um, well, let me think about it. But um now that I've had a, a few months to recover, I definitely want to do it again. And there were a few things that um made the trip somewhat stressful. We had a we, we did have a few issues with the car. And um we did have a few issues with paperwork and insurance that, that really um were stressful things to deal with. Uh but now that we figured that part out and we, we found some things that we had to upgrade on the car. I know that the next time I do it, it'll be a much more enjoyable and relaxing experience.
0: Right, right. Okay. Now that's really cool. Well, one thing I do like to do at the end of these interviews is to give you three cars and play my little game called Keep, Cash, and Crush. So I give you a little heads up. Are you ready? I'm ready. <laughs> so... Uh, I did three different cars, and they all actually, you actually mentioned a few of them, which I thought was kind of a small world thing. So I'm going to give you, give you three cars that uh, pro- would qualify for the race. The first one's a Seata, the eight, the V8 version Seata. I think they only made six or seven of those. Uh, an Alfa Romeo 6C, so early 1930s car or, or mid-1930s car. And then your famous Gullwing. wing, so if you had to pick one of those to keep forever one to cash in and unfortunately one to crush, how would you do it? Oh my goodness! Um,
1: well the um gosh, I would like to keep all of them um,
0: <laughs> uh
1: I think the uh maybe the cash in would be the Seattle. Um those are very rare and, and with that large engine and them um they're quite valuable I, I would love to own that car, uh, but that might be one to cash in and um the Alfa romeo um oh uh, gosh that's a cool car i hate to hate to crush it, but it's just a little too old for for me, and so I'd probably then keep the galling
0: okay all right I like that yeah the age age uh made the decision for you, huh. <laughs>
1: Yeah, age and, and my style, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you know, those old cars are really, really cool. I just, um, I just,
0: it's not something that I want to drive around town. Right, right. No, that makes sense. Okay, well, awesome, man. Well, I appreciate your time today uh, talking about your adventures in Italy. Thanks, Greg. This was fun. Thanks for listening to the Collector Car Podcast. Don't forget to give us a nice rating on iTunes, and be sure to follow us on Instagram and everywhere else at the Collector Car Podcast.